Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. Today I'm going to share some thoughts on the terms don't harden your hearts and falling away as they are found in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, as we call it, which is actually a letter, is a comparison of faith and unbelief. And there are other terms used throughout it to make these ideas of faith and unbelief clear. Terms like obedience, because faith has substance and reason, so faith is evidenced by obedience, and the hardening of hearts or falling away, which signifies those who spurn the new covenant, which has been made abundantly clear. Now, in trying to think through Hebrews, I feel like I was doing or trying to do what I often try to do when I'm reading through the Bible, and that is let go of baggage of things that I've been taught to think about it and just read it for what it says. Now, this doesn't mean that I don't listen to those who have some insight into languages or have more maturity, but I think a lot of times there's this idea that the books of the Bible are academic and you just need to study them, whereas I'll talk about more later, this is just a letter to ordinary people. Some people try to evaluate all of this letter by determining if it is written to believers or unbelievers, or to those who have repented or those who have not yet repented. And while the tone is that um, of the letter being to Hebrews who are meeting together as believers, there is obviously some concern that some of them may not actually have drawn near with a true heart and fullness of faith, as he will talk about in Hebrews chapter 10, 22 yet. Now, lest you think I'm just pulling that out of a hat, let's also refer to 2 Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians from Paul, chapter 13, verse 5, where Paul says, examine your own selves, whether you are in the faith, test your own selves. So based on this concern, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews drills right in on who Jesus is, prophetically, in a priestly function and role, and sacrificially. The recipients of this letter, as Hebrews, have thorough exposure to the books of Moses, including both history and the law and the prophecies. And thus, the letter writer delves deeply into all of that to make it crystal clear that, one, the law was exposing sin. Two, faith was always the issue, and three, even those who had wonderful promises offered to them, their ancestors, didn't end up receiving them because they hardened their own hearts in unbelief. The way was clear to them, and they had much proof of who God was and how they could trust him, but they rebelled both by not following him and by energetically pursuing sin. So notably, in the examples that the writer of Hebrews gives, there was not a lack of evidence. We're not talking about some faith that is hard to figure out. The gist of it seems to be much like what Jesus told the Pharisees, which was basically, don't think you are God's children because you are descended physically from Abraham. So likewise, don't mistake or assume that you are saved and refer to Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 for that terminology, but 
don't assume that you are saved just because you get together with believers or go through any particular motions of religion. True believers are those who mixed faith with the hearing of the good news. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 2. Just hearing isn't enough. Unlike other letters in the Bible, there's no greeting or indication of who is writing in the opening. It simply opens with the direct proclamation of God having spoken in these last days to us by his Son. The Son, by this, being declared as having been there, not a promise still unfulfilled, though he will come again, as is alluded to in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 2, talking about the resurrection. In declaring the Son like this, he sets it up to make the first appeal to not perhaps drift away. The writer says we, but in context, it is speaking in a broad we. It's we who have heard the message, those who have heard the testimony from the first people to confirm it in faith, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And there are choices and responsibilities, opportunity that are emphasized. In hearing, they should pay great attention based on all the prophecies about the Son and not neglect to pay attention. Paying attention is kind of like the bridge between the hearing and the faith. If you don't give heed to the message, then you won't choose to believe in it. So pay attention, don't get distracted, treat the message as valid. Then the writer again expounds on why this is so believable. There are eyewitnesses, there were signs and wonders, and then he gives more prophetic scriptures, all making it clear that the Son came to bring to nothing the power of death and to make atonement for the sins of the people. In the next part of the letter that we call chapter 3, the writer does refer to them as holy brothers because they are claiming to be, but he obviously has some concerns, and we know from other New Testament examples that some who appeared to be holy brothers later showed themselves not to be, and 1 John chapter 2 verse 19 is one of the classic verses referring to that, but we also have Paul's references to Demas along through certain scriptures. The fact that the writer of Hebrews still has these concerns is evidenced by him going on to warn repeatedly, as in chapter 3, verses 8 through 19, about hearts being hardened in unbelief, which hardening causes people to fall away from the living God. Real holy brothers do not have hearts hardened by unbelief. Then again, at the beginning of chapter 4, the writer draws the comparison of coming short of the promise as the first generation out of Egypt did because of lack of faith. This is not just a lack of conjuring up some positive feeling about having a prayer answered exactly how we want it to be, or something like having faith that you can accomplish something superhuman. This is faith in God's message by his son, the good news. So in chapter 4, verse 11, the diligence is another way of saying paying attention, not neglecting, because the message is precise and clarifying. We, or no one, can hide from its truth or implications. But if we have faith in this one true forever high priest, we can rest in his grace and mercy. To make it clear how Jesus is a high priest, the writer refers in detail to the appearance of Melchizedek in Genesis. Just in case the Hebrews have not connected the dots and are concerned that he isn't from the tribe of Levi, 
This is explained. But this is not new information. This is all straight from their own well-maintained historical records and prophecies. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, is a reference to the sun being perfected, which honestly has been a bit mysterious to me in the past. I saw an explanation in a couple of places that made sense to me that talks about his obedience in suffering as perfecting him in his state of humanity, because it is only in suffering that true obedience can be tested. So the son's perfect obedience as a man, although he is God incarnate, had to be carried out or shown in this way. When we get to the section of the letter that is at the end of chapter 5 or beginning of chapter 6, we have a reprimand, again, indicating the writer has some strong concerns about the spiritual state of the people he's writing to. In chapter 5, verse 11, he calls them dull of hearing. In verse 12, he says they should be teachers by now. In verse 13, he says they still need to be taught the basics and they're not experienced in the word of righteousness. And in verse 14, they haven't been discerning. Then he lists what they should already have a solid understanding of, the repentance from dead work, faith toward God, teaching of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, these are not the gospel, but they are things you should understand through the gospel. You should have the right perspective of them. Then the writer goes to the infamous section about it being impossible to renew again to repentance. The question is, does this describe someone who truly was a Christ follower or who only took part in everything and from a human perspective looked like one? Based on the totality of the letter, how everything is presented in it, and other things in the Bible that we can draw in, I think we can get a good idea that he's talking about people who have heard the message, but are not truly believers. But first, let's talk about what it doesn't mean based on other parts of the Bible. It certainly doesn't mean that we are doomed if we have any doubts. Think of letters written to the Thessalonians or confusion. Think about the letter written to the Corinthians or immature. Think about Hebrews chapter five, or even if we verbally deny Christ, think of Peter. And it's not talking about something accidental. Think about Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, but it is a response of unbelief to the gospel. I want to read part of a note from the Henry Morris Study Bible about this, about verse 5. He says, in context, the author of Hebrews was warning the Jews who had professed faith in Christ not to relapse back into Jewish legalism and ritualism, but rather to go on to full maturity in Christ. The question is whether or not they were actually born again, truly believing on Christ. Could professing Christians be enlightened partakers of the Holy Spirit, having tasted of the heavenly gift and the word of God, as well as the energizing knowledge of the world to come without actually being born again Christian? These criteria all certainly apply to real Christian believers, but they also seem to apply in some measure at least to the considerable number of men who at one time were members of evangelical churches and later became apostates from the faith. In fact, it happens that the most vigorous opponents of true biblical Christianity are men who once were fundamentalist Christians, at least in name, but later through their studies came to deny the faith which they once had espoused. 
Now I'm going to read a few other scriptures that talk about a certainty of salvation. But as always, go back and read them in context. Read the whole book of John or the letter of Ephesians, etc. So John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, We were also assigned an inheritance in him, having been foreordained according to the purpose of him who does all things after the counsel of his will. And here I would add that the foreordained is referring to what was foreordained for those who had faith in him. Then there's 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. The testimony is this, that God gave to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who doesn't have God's Son doesn't have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Then there's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, but let's start with verse 22, so we're not in the middle of a sentence. Seeing that you have purified your souls in your obedience to the truth through the Spirit in sincere brotherly affection, love one another from the heart fervently, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and remains forever. Then, of course, there is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And then also in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So going on to the section of the letter that's called chapter 9, we see that it is emphasized that the sacrifice of Christ is his own blood, which makes him the only mediator of a new covenant. The writer is emphasizing that all previous sacrifices under the law were but a copy waiting for the revelation of this perfect sacrifice for our eternal redemption. And then in chapter 9, verse 28, there's the reminder that he that Christ will come again a second time. So when we get to chapter 10, you might be wondering, were these people still thinking they needed to offer temple sacrifices? And is chapter 10, verse 5, a contradiction of what God says in the law? This is actually a quote of Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. But if you particularly look at Micah chapter 6, verses 7 through 8, um, this will help you see that no, the pre-Christ sacrifices were only a temporary placeholder for faith of God's provision, as he promised. Because people sin, God would rather that people just follow him than that they need to offer sacrifices for sin. Then in chapter 10, verse 14, the writer again speaks of something that refers back to chapter 6, verse 6. Here he writes, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So even within his own letter, this writer of Hebrews speaks of a certainty once sanctification, after being born again, you might say, has begun. You might also call it maturity in love and obedience. So let's go to chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Here's that true heart of faith. And then in verse 23, 
he talks about wavering, but I don't think that's talking about the falling away or the hardening the same way. But it's more like Peter trying to walk on water, I think, and then he forgets to keep his eyes on Jesus. So at this point in the letter, the writer mostly ends the major thrust of his letter. And then he says some things about how believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, should be encouraging one another. But then in verse 26, he mentions sinning willfully again, and this is an example of a response of unbelief or disobedience, and he warns of judgment, akin to what Jesus himself says in John chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. I'll read them both so you can hear the comparison. This is John chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. He who believes in him is not judged. He who doesn't believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And then Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fierceness of fire which will devour the adversaries. That was through verse 27. Let's continue a couple more verses. A man who disregards Moses' law dies without compassion on the word of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think he will be judged worthy, who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant with which he was sanctified an unholy thing and has insulted the Spirit of grace? That was through verse 29. So the sanctification is there, made available for everyone, but some, because of unbelief and hardening their hearts, choose to willfully sin and do not receive it. When he gets to verse 36 of chapter 10, he emphasizes that being a Christ follower will take endurance. But refer back to verse 14. We are not just left to struggle on our own. He is at work in us. So after all of this comparing of faith and unbelief, when we get to the section that is called chapter 11, he really talks about what faith is. In essence, he says, faith is believing what we have been shown, told, and promised. And then he talks about all the people that they should know about from the Old Testament. God worked in the lives of those who believed he existed and sought him. And it's not that it's hard to believe that he exists, but people like to block out and ignore information that doesn't fit with their pride or desires. See Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and 20, where it talks about people suppressing the knowledge of God. And then in verse 21, where it says they knew God. So chapter 11 is all history they should know and we can read. And he points out that these people didn't receive the fullness of the promise before us, before those who get to hear the message of Jesus. In chapter 12, he points out that we should be encouraged by all of these true stories and put aside sin and run the race with perseverance. So his mention of sin here makes it clear that just because we aren't perfect, that um, we are not unbelieving or hardened. And also talking about needing to persevere because persevering in the face of the hardships of life are not just because God wants to make life hard, but he sees that these things profit us. But then in verse 15, the writer can't help but throw in another reminder not to fall short, which would be a concern if things like bitterness and immorality have taken root in somebody's life. 
Now, as a gardener, when I see a metaphor like that, I think of people tending the bitterness and immorality, like they are trying to make it grow, they are feeding it. This is not a good thing. This is possibly a sign that they have not had the faith mixed with the message. And then verse 17 is another possibly confusing section where it talks about Esau was rejected. The point seems to be that there is a time when it is too late to change your mind, and that was after the blessing is bestowed. So biblically, I'm thinking this means after death, when people who have chosen Christ are kept in him until his second coming, or after the second coming. At that point, the blessing has been bestowed and people can't change their minds. So verse 25, don't refuse. The writer is very concerned that they understand the decision and make the right one if they haven't already. In chapter 13, the writer gives some common guidelines about how to treat each other and trust to God and listen to more mature leaders. This includes the very commonly quoted verse 8, which I have heard my whole life, but rarely in context. The context is don't be taken in by new teachings. The gospel doesn't change because Jesus doesn't change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you can also refer to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4 for a very clear delineation of the gospel, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4, and Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. And then coming full circle with the idea of sacrifices in chapter 13, verse 12, the writer says, our sacrifice now is to proclaim the praise of God and to proclaim our allegiance to him. The ending of the letter is more normal compared to the other letters of the Bible. He asks for prayer and he gives a benediction. He mentions kind of ironically that it's not a very long letter, or at least it doesn't have as many words as maybe he would have liked to have written. And finally, it's interesting that he mentions Timothy being released. And if we had any doubts, we see this letter is written to all the believers in this place. He says, remember, you should be teachers by now. And this was talking to all of them. And it's certainly not just talking to the leaders because he refers in the letter in a couple of places there to them paying attention to the leaders. So this letter was written to common people. No one needed a theology degree to understand it. Yes, some more mature people obviously taught others and they brought in other scriptures, just as the writer of Hebrews is doing but it is meant to be understood by everyday Christians. It's a letter. I hope that's been encouraging for you. Thanks for listening. See you next time. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey. 